Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I talk with Gabriel Rhodes about a feature documentary that has Oscar buzz, Garrett Bradley's Time. Gabriel's credits include Matangi Maya MIA, which won the Special Jury Prize at Sundance 2018. Also, the documentaries Newtown, The Witness, 1971, The Tillman Story, Without Shepherds, and Quest for Honor, some of which were shortlisted for Oscar consideration. He was also a fellow at the 2015 Sundance Documentary Edit and Story Lab. His work has also been featured in PBS's POV and Independent Lens series. Well, let's talk about time. I, I really loved the way it started. There was kind of like a visual overture at the beginning before she actually kind of tells what the inciting incident is. Can you talk to me about deciding or determining that you needed something up at the front before the big reveal? Yeah, I, it, it was always there from the beginning to some degree, although it, it, it actually, right, we always did start with that first piece of archival. Well, not always, but sort of, you know, by maybe the halfway through the process we found that one piece of archival where she's talking about where she is in that moment that, you know, her husband's in jail and you're, you're sort of seeing her at her most sort of emotionally devastated after the incident. So uh, the question was where to go from there. It, it had originally, we had started going to her speech that, that it would kind of bring you into the present day and then she would walk into that theater and she would start sort of presenting her story for people. When we started working with um, the soundtrack, that, that is in the film now, you know, it had such a um, evocative power to it. And the more we worked with that archival, the more we sort of found ourselves with all these little pieces that were on the outside looking in. It felt like we wanted to establish that this archival was a big part of the language of the film and that chronology was going to be sort of thrown out the window. So in that first montage, you see so much of the span of time that that archival travels. And and also it, it establishes the language for it, that this music is going to be driving a lot of this material. There's a, a, a language created between the music and the archival that, that they sort of bounce off of each other. There's sort of, a, there's sort of a modern quality to it and sort of a classical quality to it. And so it, it has this... Um, I don't know, it just felt like the right vibe, the, white, the right way to sort of feel that archival and see who these people are and, and understand what it is that you're going to be sort of digesting over the next hour and a half. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the idea of just before she actually says, my husband just, you know, got sentenced to jail or my husband is in jail, there are some moments that are almost preparatory for her. And I wanted to talk about what the value is in having that material at the very, very top. And there's also like, there's some noise, there's some sound presence, ambience in black before that, I think, right? Yes, you hear sort of the sounds of her family in the background. The, uh, the value of that for me was just that it so much of the film is about sound. And I think that so much of the archival is not just visual, it's actually audio too. You know, there is so much richness in sort of the sounds of her world. And I think that's just sort of, the, it's the sound of children. It's the sound of a family, you know? It, it's telling you what this film is going to be about. Um, it's telling you about what this world is that you're going to be inhabiting. You know, it felt like the right bed to have underneath the credits um, as a way to sort of pull you in, you know, sonically. I really love films that start that way. I really love being introduced to sound before visuals because it it's like the appetizer. It just it just eases you into that world. Yeah, well, it's like a, in a play, right? You'd get the the encore, or not the encore, the entract, you know, the overture, right? So you, you hear the music and the lights are still down and no one's on stage. And yeah, it's a great way to start. Yeah, I think what it does too is it creates a little bit of a mystery. It's telling you one piece of information that's very vague and yet you start filling in the gaps a little bit, you know? And so I think then when she comes on and then you're confronted with her visually right away looking at the camera and she's telling you this information, you've, you've, you're enticed already, you know? So I, I, I love that aspect of that. 
despite a lot of the stuff being iPhone footage or, you know, some of it's video, I guess, because you actually see video noise or something, there are a lot of great cinematic moments. And how did you organize the footage to like go, oh, I got to I got to get that in there. That's got to be something that I got to remember. It's got to be something I can use at some point. Uh, talk to me a little bit about organization and finding stuff. So the process was that Garrett had shot all of her current day footage, most of it, by the time I showed up. And what had happened was she was planning on making this film into a short. She had a very sort of prescripted, you know, shot list and she knew sort of what the sort of boundaries of the material was going to be. And at the, just as she was about to start the edit, Fox handed her like a bag of what are, they're mini DV tapes. They weren't shot on the iPhone. They actually were mini DV tapes. And she said, look, I shot this stuff when the kids were little. I don't, maybe it'll come in handy for you. And, and it was about 80 hours of footage, just this beautiful treasure. And Garrett started looking through it and it, it simultaneously opened the project up, sort of became this like, now it's a sort of an open-ended thing. It's no longer, is it a short? Is it a feature? She didn't know what it was going to be. And it also, I think, sort of threw her off her game. You know, you sort of have this concept of what this film is going to be. And all of a sudden you, you hit this crossroads and it becomes a completely different thing. And Garrett had never worked with an editor before. And so they decided like, maybe let's bring in an editor and we can start to work with that material and see how it kind of interfaces with the sort of modern day stuff. So I came on board and uh, she had already gone through and made some selects from the archival and she sent me those selects and I immediately was gravitated right towards that. So the first thing I did was sit down and look through all the archival. I probably watched it through twice and I marked it up, which is just how I like to work. I just, I don't categorize anything. I don't try and put it into baskets. I just, I just want to really respond to the material, but I, I do it through markers. I take tons of notes in the markers and that became my guide essentially. Over the course of the edit, I would go back to those markers repeatedly and find moments that I had dismissed or that I thought were not quite emotionally resonant. But then once the edit had started to unfold, I found like, oh, I need a moment that sort of does something like this. And you would, it would recontextualize those moments for you. So you'd look at them again with different eyes and you'd say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't see that before. So I try and stay as open as I can to it. I find that putting stuff into categories or into baskets is just going to limit my interaction with it when actually it, it's like painting. It was like, it, I sort of treat those, that footage as colors, you know, and the colors can kind of interface differently with the footage as you're starting to find it and create new colors. So it was a constant reworking process. Yeah, that's huge advice, I think. I have a hard time not categorizing stuff like that or not pulling selects just because I feel it's a way for me to get my brain around it. But what you're saying about how it limits you in your attitude towards something, like the first time you see it, you're like, oh, this is about this thing. And so you put it into a bucket and that means in your brain, it's in that bucket instead of allowing it to be that could go anywhere. So it's a really creative way of thinking about it. It's just difficult, man. I, I my hat's off to you. Um, how do you use those? Um, are you an avid? I'm assuming, or I, I, I'm working on avid right now. But uh, I, I this film is cut on Premiere. Time is cut in Premiere. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so you're using markers in Premiere, and are you searching? Is there is there a way that you're using to search across them? Like when you say, oh, I have all. These markers and, and I need to find something, what are you doing at that point to find them? I set up keystrokes so that I can move through them really quickly so that I can pop through. Because, you know, when you're looking at home movies, there is a lot of stuff that just you immediately know. You're like, I, this is not something I'm going to be using. Yeah. So I, I want to be able to move quickly through the stuff and remind myself of what's there sometimes. I oftentimes will transcribe full moments. So if someone's talking, I will word for word sit and transcribe it. Something about typing out the dialogue puts it in my brain in a certain way so that I remember it uh, more fluidly. For sure, when there was repetitive moments, you can put those words in and then they're easy. it's easy to find the seven different instances when that happens. So yeah, I love the searchability of them and I love the, the ability to move through them quickly. When you're searching, you're just searching in the material itself, like calling up a clip into the source window and then jumping between markers. You're not using some kind of a window or a find command or any of that stuff. Oh, no, I use a find command to search oh. through the whole project for certain markers. If I know it's something universal I want to find in all the archival, but oftentimes I'll pull up these clips were done, these tapes were done as individual
individual clips. So like an hour long tape was one clip, you know, and within that one clip, I would have 55 markers, you know, so I would, I would, if I, if I knew it was on that tape, I could pop in and just be like, bam, 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 and get to the spots that I felt like were the most valuable in that clip, in that tape. But it also, in looking through it, just like anything, like if you go record shopping or something, you you know what I mean? The act of looking makes you think in a different way and it's a physical thing it's like the only it feels more like when i've cut film before it feels like that you know like looking through the bins looking through the looking through the trims something about the markers feels like that to me and it and it motivates my brain in a certain way so sometimes it would be as simple as i don't know what i'm looking for but i'm going to go and like look through every single marker on these six tapes and see what happens yeah that's really interesting i I remember talking to somebody early on about they were a film editor and they used to have two chems. They had a chem that they were working on and they would have another chem and the footage would, they just have a selects reel rolling and it would not, it would be off to the side, but you know, every once in a while, you know, you, you stop doing what you're doing, you, you, they'd glance over and you're like, oh, what the heck was that? That's awesome. It's the magic of the moment, you know? Like there is a little bit of magic and there's a little bit of luck and those yeah. kind of things. I just think it's treasure hunting sometimes, you know? Uh, I love that. Those are some great answers. I, I totally love that idea. What did you temp with? The, there's a classical piano that kind of goes through, or not classical, I don't know what to call it other than classical piano, uh, a solo piano that goes through a lot of the beginning of the movie. What did you temp with? I temped with a bunch of different soundtracks. I tend to use, I know some filmmakers, I was just talking to an editor uh, about he temps like only with like needle drop music, you know, because that it's like so generic in a way. I think it just allows him to just let the footage speak. But I tend to temp with multiple soundtracks because I kind of want to have the different color palettes to work with. So I'll pull the Sort of emotional music from this soundtrack. I'll pull the more propulsive music from this soundtrack. And I oftentimes will also let, if I discover a new artist, I will try and temp with that artist. And this, and the original temp I used was from an old friend of mine who was a cellist who uh, had just come out with a new album. And I was using his temp as I knew it needed to be sort of like a, like a uh, organic instrumentation. You know, I didn't want anything electronic. So I was temping with a lot of this cello music that is a little bit experimental and ethereal. And um, that worked for a while. And we also were temping a little bit with like the Moonlight soundtrack and, you know, um, more sort of evocative sound, recent evocative soundtracks. So when one day Garrett came in and said, listen, I want you to listen to this this album and let's see if we can start cutting with this stuff. And it was that album um, by Emma Hoy. I can't pronounce her last name, but she's, she was an Ethiopian nun. And she uh, is, you know, there's this series called Ethiopiques. So she's an Ethiopian uh, musician. And it immediately, I was like, oh, this is a, this is the sound, you know, this is what we want. And we started sprinkling it in. And then Garrett kept saying, no, 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 put it in here too. Put it in there, put it in there, put it in there. And suddenly (laughs) we realized like, this is actually kind of the, the music of the whole film, you know? Now there was a certain flavor of music, there's a certain sort of mood that it that music couldn't evoke. And so later we ended up working with um, a pair of composers who brought us sort of that that sort of other flavor that you hear sort of from the midway point through the end. But we really wanted that 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 piano to sort of speak to the archival and for it to represent Fox Rich's world. I'm assuming everything was shot in color. What was the value or purpose of presenting it in black and white? Yes, everything was shot in color, um, and we edited it in color up until maybe the three-quarter point. Garrett had originally showed it to me in black and white, and that was because this was a this was sort of conceived as a sister film to um, another film she had made called Alone. And that film was in black and white. Because the film's concept had changed so much from when she was handed that archival, I asked her to just, let's, let's saturate it again. Let's, let's disconnect it from your original concept of, of what that film was. So we're not sort of burdened by that. And she agreed to that, which was awesome, um, that she was open to that. At some point or another, right around when we started messing with the Emahoy music, the film was finding itself sonically. And I think then visually it was starting to sort of establish itself too. And Garrett came to me one day and said, look, I think we should go back to black and white. And at that point it made perfect sense because 
the archival has a certain quality to it in color that's a very like 90s quality you know um very mini dv yeah <laughs> but the music had established this sort of timeless quality to the material um and garrett works in a lot of slow-mo and that kind of so there's sort of this there's this sort of floating quality to a lot of the footage and when you desaturated it the archival and the modern day, they sort of clicked into each other in a way that it's hard to explain, but it made it, it, it allowed them to function in the same world as opposed to when you were in a saturated world, you would always sort of see the archival as just archival. It didn't feel like this sort of lost, um, timeless piece of treasure that you had, you know, that you're kind of in, engaged with. So once we desaturated them, those two pieces of media sort of lived in the same space. And I think that's really what made the film click. Yeah. I, I honestly, as a fellow professional, when I was watching it, it took me for a while to realize, oh, wait a minute, this was shot by a professional. You know, like there was there was the archival stuff, and then I'm like, wait, I'm not in archival anymore, and it took me a while to even realize it. I think that's good. Yeah, no, it was, and and that's not a that's not a slam to the shooting. It's it's that the black and white merged the two in a really seamless way. Yeah, and I think one of the underlying themes of the film is that this is Fox's film. Like, you really shouldn't be thinking about Garrett when you're watching the film. The first thing that you hear. Fox say in the in the modern day footage is she's looking at a camera, you know, like the she's looking at a screen on a camera and she says, okay, I like that. I like that. It's like she's kind of directing her world, you know? Mm -hmm. So it it allowed us to sort of fuse those two and and get Garrett out of the way in a way. And you 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 just see them as one one blanketed kind of space, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um Talk to me about editing non-professional camera movement. There's a distinct feel to the footage that was shot. You know, I was thinking some of it was a phone, but uh, the DV, mini DV footage, you know, it's got a feel to it because the camera's lightweight. So there's a definite, you know, feeling to that. Is there a trick to getting jump cuts to work when you're working with material that's shot in that method? I don't think there's a trick to it. I do think you have to put on a different side of your, turn on a different side of your brain. It's not exactly like a left brain, right brain thing, but people that shoot footage like Fox Rich or in the film I edited before this film about the pop star M.I.A. who've shot a lot of her background in mini DV as well. They, they are trying to capture something personal. They want to sort of make this footage into a journal of their life. But both of them didn't really have an intention in mind. You know, it wasn't like Fox thought, oh, 20 years from now, a filmmaker's going to approach me. I want to make a film, and so I can just, I'll, I'll make sure I have this footage ready for her. So there's this real off-the-cuff quality to it. There's a lot of peeking around the edges in footage like that. That The camera comes on, sometimes the camera comes on, and then it gets put down somewhere on a table, and then there's audio going on. And, and the moment that they start filming, they think of as the first moment, but you're given this gift of moments outside of the frame of intention. And so you become this sort of other element of the footage that you're like the storyteller of the footage. You're using it in a way that it was never really intended. And it's, there's a lot more possibilities in it, I think, than there is in sort of footage that has an intention to it if that makes sense. When it's conceived as one thing, it's hard to divorce it from what it's conceived of. But when it's not really conceived as anything, it can be formed into whatever you want it to be. So there's sort of a, there's a more manipulatable quality to that footage. It's, it can, you can paint with it a lot easier. So that is such a joy to work with it. I think most other editors would be able to relate to that thing that you're saying about that you can use the footage that is before it was meant to be used. You know, I think that's a great gift, that kind of footage. But that does take some thinking. It takes some like getting outside of, oh, well, I'm not going to use any of this because she didn't mean it to be shot, you know, kind of stuff. You're like, no, that's very useful. It's like a lot of editors will use the footage after the slate and before action is called. I think that um, that kind of thing, when is, that becomes a discovery process. So it's not even like you're thinking about it as much as you are trying to just be as open 
as you possibly can to what's there. And that goes back to those markers thing, just like looking at it again and again and again and again and trying to see it through a different lens every time you look at it. Could you talk specifically about cutting the scene where she goes to Aunt Sandra's house? It's kind of something really chaotic. She's in the car with the kids and she seems super excited to be going to this house. And then it's just like chaos. And I just loved the editing in that section. Can you talk about cutting something that's that chaotic? I remember it pretty well, actually, because it was one of the first things I cut of that archival footage. So I knew I wanted to be able to root the story in a time of sort of before the incident. And that was one of the only pieces of footage that had that quality. Um, to me, it felt like this is a family in its most intimate moment. And even though it's sort of an innocuous moment, you don't really know why she's going to her, her, you know, the aunt's house. You don't really know what they're doing, but there's like a lot of love in the car. Um, they're actually on some kind of a road trip, you know? And I thought the first time I watched it, the way, the way Fox is sort of freaking out as they're pulling up, you know, <laughs> it, it yep. said so much about her that, that, that this sort of, she has this overwhelming like zeal for life, you know, and for joyous moments. Um, and now that I know her in person, she is like that in person. So I, I just felt like it summed up so much of what I understood about her from the footage that I just wanted to anchor the film in that in that moment. So it, it expanded and it retracted that moment um, when they get inside and it's chaos and all that. I ended up finding these little pieces of dialogue through the course of the edit that I would kind of fold back into that moment just to give us a little bit of information. When the piece was a little bit longer, when that section was a little bit longer, you had some moments that you really liked. And when you shortened it, you wanted to make sure that those same moments, at least an audio, right, get kept. Yeah, but it was more about that as we were editing, people wanted a little more context, you know, about what, who, who, like who these people were, what, what we could know, learn about them earlier in the film. And so there are little tiny pieces of audio that sort of slipped into that moment, you know, just to tell you a little bit of stuff about who she is. It's like, there's this moment where she's like, surprise! And like, that that actually came like much later, but I wanted to sort of give that idea that like, she's the kind of person that'll spontaneously just show up on your doorstep and you won't even know it, you know? And that, <laughs> and that the family loves each other, that there's a lot of love in that moment. And then it also says something, you know, about Rob, like when Rob comes in and he's sort of hugging people. And, and it was one of the few moments we had of Rob. So we sort of wanted to lean into his footage as well in that one moment where he's he's sort of a little bit on the outside of the family, but he's he's so warm and receptive at the same time in the way he's looking at everybody. So it said a lot about both of them. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Gabriel Rhodes. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Gabriel Rhodes. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the structure of it was that you guys decided not to kind of reveal some of the information about why her husband's in jail until much later in the film. And by then you kind of fallen in love with Fox. I think it would be a very different film if you knew that information right up front. Yeah. And like I said, we tried having that information a little more up front in the, in the early edits. The way this structure came about was that I, the first cut I did, I did very quickly and I wanted to just get the basics of the story down to see how it would play and to see if we could pull it off because it was very um, loose. There wasn't a whole lot to hang on to in terms of what happened in that story and there weren't quite the materials to sort of put it together. So I did a skeleton basically and said, okay, here's all the stuff laid out as, as, as she tells it of what happened. And then we just slowly peeled it away because Garrett 
Garrett's belief, and I, I, I understand now exactly what she was trying to do, was like, the details don't matter. Yeah, we peeled back the layers of the details. And the more we did it, obviously the more questions kind of came up, but then we found other ways to sort of answer them just without organically, without trying to sort of provide as much detail. And I think the answer to do it was sort of emotionally, like what was the emotional impact of this event? What was, how did it leave the kids? What was a, where in the footage do we see that? Like that moment that you see where Remington's in the car, um, Remington's the oldest son, and he says, um, I'm going to take care of it, mom. Like, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the one who's going to take care of it. I'm going to be the man. Like, that was a piece that came in later in the process because, and it said so much more about what happened with the family after this event than any narration would from Fox. So mm. we just found ways to sort of put that emotional fall, the emotional fallout of this event in there and peel away as much of the details we possibly could while still leaving enough for you to understand what had happened. Yeah. And, and I think that's a powerful lesson. It's really important to decide when to reveal information. Like the other thing that you don't reveal is that she was in jail. Right. Well, we sort of do it. You do it just enough, you know, um, but you don't need too much of it. Yes, you kind of get a sense because she's in church and she says, you know, I just got out of jail. She says in the, uh, she says in the church, I just got out of jail and I want to make apologize. And, you know, so I feel like there's enough in there that you kind of get it, but you don't really know how long or what the detail was or why she went to prison and what the terms were for her. You know, it's complicated. As soon as you started to put legal details into the film, it kind of killed the emotional truth of the film because legal stuff is so complicated. So it just was like, let's just peel it away and see if we can live without it. Yeah, no, I think that really was a, a powerful, important decision. The structure, as you said uh, earlier, you know, we're, we're going to throw chronology out the window. <laughs> tell me, tell me about building that structure because it is not linear. And how did you come to the, each one of those pieces being where they were? Well, it, it, what it is, I think it's an emotional structure. I think there's an emotional mapping going on in the, in the film. And that was really the intention from the beginning. Garrett said right at the top of working together, I want this film to flow like a river. So the idea was that you would be sort of in this stream and as you're going through the stream, time is sort of flowing along and it does. It, you have to sort of see chronology in the footage as equal. Like it's like if you could just see everything is happening in no time, then that allowed, that freed you up from thinking, well, wait, well, this happened before that. So we can't show this before that. So it, it just allowed you to sort of move anything anywhere once you had established the rules, which like we talked about that montage at the front kind of helped you to establish some of those rules. And then what happened was there were these sort of cornerstones. I knew that we had to have the introduction in the speech uh, where she sort of at least introduces herself and you get a piece of what this puzzle is, of what happened and what the inciting incident is. I knew that we had to have that speech in the church, that she had to have a moment where she sort of had to reckon with herself. And then we also knew we had to have a moment when the closure could start or like you, that you would sort of turn this corner and that you realize, wait a minute, maybe this story is coming to an, an end, you know? Because otherwise it would just feel like this never-ending kind of forward-moving, you know, shapeless thing. So we sort of worked on crafting those moments, um, the last one being when she's in that lawyer's office and you start to get a little bit more of like, wait, something is changing, something is happening. So that is what we built all the rest of the emotional structure around those sort of three cornerstones. And um, it was just a matter of dialing it in over eight months. I love the fact that there's not a chronological story mapping, but there's an emotional story mapping. I see cards on the wall behind you. Did you do emotional story mapping out on a wall? No, I do it in the, in the edit. I do it in the project. I, I don't know how it kind of works. I, I think I think it's it's all about that first response, you know? It's like that watching that, that archival footage and going, what is my initial reaction to this? And then holding on to that and returning to it every time. Like, what did that make me feel? And what do I need to feel right now in this structure? Mm -hmm. And how do I get the pieces into this space to feel just that? 
it's such an this is such an emotional film, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I I guess I'm a pretty emotional person. So I I really listen to that as I'm working, and I did a lot of crying while I was cutting this film, and a lot of like passionate moments of inspiration and frustration, just like Fox. And you you ride that, you know. And it's it's just about sort of listening to to your your feelings as you're going through it and honing it. I really love that idea of your emotional center or your empathy being a a powerful tool as an editor. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, we can we can talk all we want about, oh, how you cut in Avid and how you cut in Premiere and how you organize things and (laughs) value of a jump cut. But let's talk about coming from an emotional place as being so critical. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it, that the empathy is like the word that I would use to describe like almost every at least documentary editor I know. I think you have to have a deep sense of empathy because you're asking to relate to these characters, you know, uh, in air quotes, uh, that you're living with and yet you never meet them. And then you're also sort of weirdly defining their life or one part of their life and, you know, and kind of put, it's indelible. You're putting it down mm-hmm. into, into film and, and people are going to watch it. So you have this deep sense of responsibility as well for for that. I just think that's a quality that all good editors have is the ability to empathize with people and then also at the same time the ability to distance themselves from those people enough to sort of tell their story respectfully. I, I worked on a film called Newtown that was that you know was about the shootings in in Newtown of the of the kids in school and um you know that was also an emotional mapping sort of structure that film and it was it was such a profoundly emotional experience to work on these this this incredible intense experience that these people had and the way that they were opened up about about their personal experience and then you you internalize it a little bit you know i had young kids at that time it was a really difficult edit because of that because I was over-empathizing in a way. It became almost crippling. You know, you sort of ride that. You have to sort of know when to pull back and know when to re-engage. And then the beautiful thing is you get to meet these people at the end of this process. And it's weird at first because you're sort of disembodied from them and they don't know that you know them so well, you know? (laughs) Exactly. You know, but then actually in both of these cases, in Newtown and and in this film too, I ended up bonding with them in a profound way because they recognized that I, that I saw that I had seen something in them and that they I helped them to see themselves in a certain way and and you connect in that in that way emotionally with them it's it's a really unique relationship yeah that Newtown thing is something I think about a lot because I've done some dark editing and some joyous editing and man to be in a in a space like that for a long time that's that's difficult to do. I think it is difficult and I think it's but it also feels like when you're doing something like that you're doing important work and yeah. um, that that sort of keeps it keeps you going in those yeah. dark but then it's important to do something lighter on the back side <laughs> of the next film, you know. I mean this would seem like it would be dark or difficult but Fox is just so joyous. I mean, she is a person, I was thinking about this the other day, the the idea that you can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude towards your circumstances. And that just seems to define her. She's like, yep, crappy life, but I'm a happy girl. You know, that is just... Yeah, I mean, how do you not fall in love with that kind of strength? You know, yeah. it's not something yeah. you see every day. And to have it captured so intimately, as soon as Garrett showed me the material, I was like, I'm in, like that... I love her already, you know, and that's what pulls you in. Yeah, 100%. So to go to something more technical from something so so emotional, talk to me about pre-lapping audio to make a transition. Um, Like there was a place where you're hearing the road noise at Sandra's house before you cut to the road going by. What's the value of a pre-lap? What does that get you and why don't you do it every time? Well, in this particular instance... And it's difficult. That's like in every film, right? You use it in a different way. But I think in this instance, sound design was a huge part of the film. And we started where Garrett had shot a lot of this footage of road, the road driving by, cars, wheels turning and sort of movement. She loves sort of kinetic movement. The audio of cars passing becomes a little bit of a ticking clock 
in the film. I realized that we had done it in certain places, even when there's like no context for it. Like you don't even go to like a, a, a driving shot. You just hear this sort of road sound, you know, and it becomes like a, it's almost Pavlovian or something. Like it puts you into this headspace that sort of feels like something is moving forward or that, and it, and it has an eerie quality to it that sort of pass, something passing by you. It feels like you're moving through space and time. And I think that's why we did a lot of those prelapse and what the value of them is that as we added more and more of them, they become a bit of a ticking clock and you feel their progression. But a lot of other times I'll do prelapse when you want to fuse two worlds, you know? And I think we did that in this too, when you're going from the modern footage to the, to the archival. It, it gave you a way to sort of be ushered into this other reality, you know, and pulls them together and connects them, especially when you look at those, how much, how many times we used it throughout the film. It's a familiar audio, audible space to be in as you might be sort of jarred by two realities clashing together. It just softened them. Sure. I love that. Let's talk about breaths for a minute or spaces or pauses or whatever you want to call them. What made you decide to take a breath? For example, after the grandmother talks about her daughter going to the courtroom and kind of flinging her hair at the white people or whatever it was that she said, you know, warning her, don't do that. You know, these people got to like you. She says something kind of profound. And then you cut to a shot of Fox kind of from a totally different time, just sitting there almost looking at the camera. I don't know. You know, it's one of those things that you might look at and go, oh, I'm never going to use this. She's not doing anything. But it was a great moment for the audience to kind of soak in something that's said. Can you talk about where you felt those moments where you needed to open it up? I think there's two parts to that question. The first is like with Miss Peggy, who's that's Fox's mom. She has such a presence about her, you know, and the way she talks. And I think that going back to how the music is evocative of this world, I think it's evocative also of Miss Peggy's world and, you know, Louisiana and sort of like there's sort of a gentility to the way that she talks, you know, that, that, that I think you pause in those moments because it allows so much of her personality to kind of come out visually without saying anything there's a presence to her that that we loved and i think you'll see that throughout the film garrett loves to look at faces you'll have a lot of moments where just someone's striking a pose and we would even slow it down sometimes so that you would just look at that pose because the way someone holds themselves or the way someone carries themselves has so much says so much about them and i learned that from garrett frankly like i think I probably was a much more impatient editor before I started working with her. And now, and I saw so much through her eyes. I saw so much value in those moments suddenly. Like, oh, I see it. You know, like it's so revealing. We have one person talking about another person, her mom talking about Sybil. And you sort of hold on Sybil that it that, po that pose also says so much about her. You know, she had a pride about her even at a young age. A resilience. There's, she has sort of like a dead stare in her eyes in that moment, I think, where she's thinking, you know, like you could see her generating that inner strength. I'm not going to let this bring me down. But at the same time, she's really vulnerable in that moment. She looks like she's been crying. She looks like she's introspective in a way that just told the story. We just leaned into those moments. Like, you didn't need to say much because the, the images would do so much for you. Mm, amen. Yeah, I love that. There's a transition of some flags flapping and a wrench in a puddle. Kind of, I think it's at a car dealership probably. I'm assuming that the siren and the flapping was all added. That wasn't production synced sound. Correct. I mean, well, some of it was like that's, it's like a car wash where they get all their cars washed that they're, they're dealing, the used cars they're selling. So there was like production audio of the splashing of the hose and that kind of stuff. But the, the flag probably, yeah, that was added. You know, again, you're trying to create like a sonic world and allow the those, those sounds to kind of pull you into the space. Similar to that huge jackhammer, there's like one transition where you just see this, I don't know what they call that thing, like an earth pounder or whatever, you know? That's yeah. just going bang, bang, bang. And we sort of saw that and fell in love with that shot because... You know, it has nothing to do with her. She's not in construction. It was shot outside of her building. Like, it had no context for where it was or anything. But it it told you something about the world. And it, and it also serviced us audibly because it, again, it was like that clock ticking sort of 
thing that pulled us along and it moved the story. It gave it a sense of like kinetic energy. So we were always trying to play with the sonic world in that way to help us tell the story. Did you aim for a specific act break to happen at approximate times, like 20 minutes in seemed to be a statement of the thesis, it's all up to me? It's not like I aimed for it from the beginning of the edit. It was a discovery, kind of like the emotional mapping. It was like finding how long you could get away with not telling people something and then planting that, knowing you had to plant that seed. Over the course of the edit, you, you would just be moving things around. Like I said, those cornerstones, you know? You had to constantly be changing where they existed within the cut in order to kind of keep people engaged. You used a really interesting or Garrett shot a very interesting thing that was you played it forward at the beginning of the movie and then backwards at the end of the movie which is like a car going over a road into another dirt road or something. Can you talk about that and how that was developed and how you decided to use it where it was used? Well it always existed in the first place which was that is a that is actually a road a dirt road that goes into a swamp with a sign that has an arrow pointing that says Angola, which is the name of the prison, right? So, I mean, a lot of that, again, you, if you don't know that information, you, you may not absorb it. But if you do know it, it just feels like, oh, that this is that the symbol of like the prison, this like smoky swamp, you know, that you just get pulled into this space and you just disappear, you know? Uh, so it always existed in the spot where Rob, where the, she sort of concludes the story about Rob getting sentenced. As we were finding our ending, which came very late in the edit, Garrett started asking me to experiment with reversing footage. She came in one day and said, I just feel like we could just run the entire film backwards at the end. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I learned along the way, like when Garrett comes in with an idea like that, it, like if your first thing is like, that's never going to work. But I never, I, I tried never to do that because I was like, no, I, she's always full of really great ideas. But she just doesn't know exactly how they're going to work yet. So it's like, let's start playing with that. So I did. I took the entire film and I exported like a quick time and then I reversed it. <laughs> And I, and I sped it up so that it played over the course of like 40 seconds. And it looked ridiculous because it's just, you would get to all these moments where there'd be an interview, you know, like it didn't have a visual thing to it. It just looked like you watched a movie backwards in 40 seconds. But I thought, you know, that's, there's something kind of cool in that. And I, the next thing I did was I went back again to all the archival, all my markers, and I looked at everything that could play backwards. And I, in my mind, I thought, I'm just going to work with just the archival because the, the modern day stuff looks silly, but the archival had something else to it. So I pulled all those pieces into a sequence and I reversed them all. And then I realized like, oh, this has this great energy, you know, that it allows us to sort of unspool the film in a certain way through this footage that you've fallen in love with. And that's where that sort of last sequence came from, you know? But then Garrett one day came in and said, look, why don't, let's, let's do the the Angola shot too, because it'll feel like that will tell you what's happening. The moment when you find out that Rob is getting out of prison always started with that moment in the car where, where Sybil is on the phone and she's saying, Angola just called, baby, you know? And that was like the first thing that Garrett shot of that day. She, she got a call, you know, Fox is going to the prison. They're getting him out today. So she just flew down and they just started filming in the car. So there was really no context for like what was happening, you know, except for that one moment on the phone. And it had such a good energy. But the, the great idea that Garrett had was to visually symbolize it for the audience so that you emotionally understand exactly what's happening, I think, before you get to the audio of that moment and it primes the pump. So you feel your heart start to swell, you know, and then you're in the moment with her. And, it, and I thought it works beautifully. Oh, yeah, you know? it was a, that was an amazing moment because you, you, you remember the reference. Because to me... I didn't know that that was Angola when it went over. I just thought it was like, oh, there's an interesting little bit of footage. But it felt like I'm going into the heart of darkness, you know? Like, here's this horrible part of my life, and now I'm going down this dark dirt road that looks like I'm in a horror movie. And then on the other end of it, you're coming back out of it. Here I am, I'm leaving that moment. And the other place that I remember you ran backwards was something else we talked about, which was going to the house, right? And so you're coming back out of all that chaos of the door and all that stuff. I, I, it was it was such a, it opened up so many tools for us. Um, and, and Garrett 
I think as a visual artist is she's so gifted in terms of understanding what those kind of evocative images can do. You're not a regular listener to Art of the Cut, but people that are regular listeners to Art of the Cut will recognize this as a constant theme through multiple interviews, over 300 interviews, that bad ideas turn into good ideas. And that's like that one, like, no, running the movie backwards is just, that's just stupid. But then there's this gem of an idea in there if you're open, if you're open to it. I I, I think it's all about being open. And then I think the editing process is so exhausting over the course of such a long period of time that it's like it whittles away your ability to be open to that, (laughs) to to that first reaction to the footage. And I, I mean, the theme of this conversation, I think, has been those markers that it's like it allows me to stay in that first reaction a little bit. And the, mm-hmm. and then that openness, I think you just have to it's just like holding on to that as long as you possibly can through the process and not closing out you know, one part of your brain. There's kind of a nice break. We were talking about breaths and one of the other breaths that you could easily go this doesn't belong in the film necessarily is the white coat ceremony before you get to the there's kind of a speech which exemplifies or it's really powerful for the film to the point of the film, I thought. Um, But there's just kind of getting ready for the white coat ceremony. He's just kind of, you know, putting on his coat, talking to his friends. It's a pause in the film that you don't have to have, but it's lovely to give the audience that space. Well, it it does provide a pause. I think that's really astute. Like, it's a great observation because it, again, back to that sort of emotional structuring, you also needed moments where you could just feel and watch, you know, and that provided one of them. There weren't a ton of things that Garrett had shot that were sort of like what you'd call verite moments, um, but that was one of them. When we first started talking about the film, one of the big themes that Garrett wanted to address is black exceptionalism. And this moment, we felt like kind of did that for us. It showed this sense of pride in the family and it allowed us to sort of introduce a lot of the characters too. Like you see as Remington getting um, getting his uh, his degree and then you also see uh, the twins or at least one of them, I think you see Justice and you see Fox, oh, you see Little Rob. So there's like a lot of like, it just feels like the first family moment you get. And I think those little interactions also that Remington's doing with uh, the other students say so much about him. Like he's sort of, he's telling you like, I think they said we're going over there. We're going over there. Like it, it plays to that moment later in the film when he says, I'm going to be the one that kind of like holds the family together. You know, like you're trying to find these resonant moments between the past and the present. And that was one of those resonant moments um, that allo- that kind of opened the the, 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 the the lock for that moment as a kid in the car. You know, they kind of start to just harmonize with each other. Yeah. I love that. And it wasn't wasn't really fully explained. Like, I, I love that you didn't lead the audience through a lot of that stuff. You're just like, eventually they'll figure out what this is. You know, it wasn't explained, you know, what a white coat ceremony was or what he was doing or what this was for. You just kind of figured it out as you went. I think, again, where anytime we sort of started to explain too much, it just became... It just stepped on the emotion of it. Um, you saw this event. You see that these people are some kind of, you know that they're kind of doctor. You know that there's some kind of medical thing involved, right? There's that just very quick speech from someone who says, like, you you did this. All the things that were working against you, you came through, you know? Mm-hmm. So th- it's it's just about pride. That moment is about pride and, and, and a sense of, like, accomplishment. That is just a big part of yeah. that, that family's story. Yeah, and I loved uh, to that theme of uh, black exceptionalism, I loved the several moments in the film of making sure their hair looked great and ironing. There was a lot, (laughs) there's a lot of ironing in this movie, (laughs) not to turn anybody off from the movie, but there's a lot of ironing. And I loved it because it showed how, you know, what, what, did it, what was the purpose of the ironing and the you hair know, stuff? You caught it, right? It is. That's yeah. what it's about. It's about appearances. I think when they're going to church, it's like about like we are a family that it cares about like how we present, you know, and that is important to them. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Like it says a lot about Sybil. It says a lot about her kids. I think you see it in freedom, the way that he carries himself and the way he talks in, to the to the sort of class and, the, you know, the way that he is carrying himself through college. And it, it just, you know, you sort of can just feel who they are through that through those moments. There are a number of jumps forward and backward in time as we've talked about. What was the guiding principle in deciding the exact 
moment that propels you forward or back. If you can think of a, you know, an example, that'd be great. But if you can't. Yeah. Oh, here's a good one. When you first meet the twins, Freedom and Justice, there's this moment that's just like a chaotic family moment, you know, and she says, what's your name? And what? And he says, Justice. And she says, your name is Just Us. And he says, Just Us. And then, then it cuts to this moment when Freedom comes in and then she says, Freedom's won this award, you know? And then Justice is all the way in the corner and she says, you didn't win an award, did you, Justice? And he's like, no, no, I didn't. And then he grabs the camera and he kind of looking at the camera and then the two boys start kind of wrestling. And, and, um, that that moment we just kept kind of expanding that scene like later and later and later because it was like uh, unpeeling the onion you know it was like them or peeling the onion i guess but as you as you went further into the footage it just kept showing more of their dynamic you know and it was so it i it just feels like just when you think like okay this is the thing that's gonna take us back to the present you would sort of unroll a little more footage and realize no 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 there's more there that's revealing about them and just maximize it as much as possible. So that's, that was really the principle, I think, that of, of when we would go back and forth. And then sometimes it was an aesthetic principle. Sometimes it was like, I really love this moment, the way she's holding her face, and that matches to something that we see visually in the, in the present day. So it just depended on the, on the footage, but... Um, each one of them was like a little challenge and a puzzle, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Merch has talked to me about the, Walter Merch has talked about, you know, kind of a shot's expiration date. You know, you, you use the shot until the shot gets to that point where, yep, it's expired and you, you have to be out of it before the expiration date hits. Yeah. But I, I learned on this process that a lot of times I thought an expiration date was much earlier than it was. And that's where I'm talking about. Like Garrett taught me so much about having patience and value in your footage. Like I think a lot of times with the documentary, especially when you're working with home shot archival, it's really easy to look at stuff and be like, eh, this is just like a bunch of home footage, you know, but for her, it was like a treasure chest, you know, it was like every little moment said something and I saw it through her eyes eventually and realized uh, to be so much more patient with it because the expiration date was always later than I thought. <laughs> Super great advice. Thank you. And, and the film shows that the, the, the joy and the love and the, and the treasure chest of the, the footage is definitely evident in this movie. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for cutting a great movie. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Steve. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Gabriel Rhodes. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.